One of the first articles correlating performance and happiness was published in 2003, showing that these two concepts are very closely related. They are part of an effective performance management system, one that connects to a culture that supports, supports positive approaches to influencing also positively people, which also increases overall happiness. Studies show that people who consider themselves happy and are also effective performance share kind of similar characteristics. So we can say that they have a, like a clear direction and find the direction motivating. They focus on what is important. They understand where, what is the sphere of influence that they have and achieve a great, a great results. They talk and act in ways that promote performance and happiness for all, both. They are significantly engaged in their work, finding meaning and purpose in their work and have more positive experience than negative uh, experiences. That's where I want to dig and understand ways to boosting performance, personal growth and happiness at work. So my guess is someone who is recognized for its her innovative views on education. Angela Stopper, in fact, Dr. Angela Stopper is the chief learning officer at the University of California, Berkeley. In addition to her work at UC Berkeley, Dr. Stopper is a faculty member with Penn State World Campus. She holds a master in workforce education and development and a doctorate in workforce education and development. Angela, welcome to the to this episode. And I wanted to understand, Angela, how did this interest in education start for you? Thank, first, thank you, Ivan, so much for having me. It is truly a pleasure to be here with you and your audience today. I'm really, really excited for our conversation. And you know, it's interesting. My my passion for education, I've thought about it a lot. I'm, I'm a first-generation college student. I come from a very rural part of Pennsylvania. My dad was a coal miner. My mom worked in a factory. Uh, no one in my family really went to college, but very early on, I decided education was the way that I, it was my future. Uh, I, I jokingly blame Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Reading Rainbow for opening <laughs> my eyes to this wonderful world outside of, of rural Pennsylvania. And, you know, I, I ended up at the Pennsylvania State University, which is a public research land grant institution, which is, is really in the United States. One of the missions when it was created by Abraham Lincoln was to democratize education. And in that space, I found my people. I found my connections. I just flourished. And as part of my undergraduate program, I had some professors that, you know, really took an interest in me and for whatever reason saw something in me and, and encouraged me to go work at the business school. And so I worked in executive education as an undergraduate and it opened my eyes to this amazing industry that I didn't even know existed. This adult education workforce planning industry. And so from, from then, from, you know, age, 19 as a, as an undergraduate at Penn State I was awakened to this notion of growth mindset and and workforce education and workforce strategy and all these wonderful things that we do within executive education and 
over the last, you know, 25 years have just continued to to play in that space and try to, you know, make make work better for everybody that that I can. Exactly. You know, when I, when you were talking, I was thinking, but she's all about the purpose, what it can bring, the opportunities that it can bring to people. It's not well, it might be partially also because it could be super interesting to understand education because it's something that has been going on for forever. But the innovation part is happening as we as we speak. And yeah, I, I have the impression that you are driven by this purpose of contributing to the society. Um, Angela, I wanted to ask you, so during the COVID times, a lot of organizations have questioned the way they are delivering trainings. And by the way, I have noticed um, that the post-COVID companies have started putting back money budgets to invest in people's development. But it's not in the same way that it used to be pre-COVID. The allocation of budgets have been a little bit different. So there was a lot of technical um, trainings that there was a focus pre-COVID. And now it's a little bit different. So what have you observed in these areas of, of focus? Where are they allocating that money? Where do they want to see more results on people? Yeah, I think, Ivan, you're exactly right. And I think the best organizations, the smartest, most agile, most innovative organizations are really starting to look at that kind of personalization and self-driven customization of education. So figuring out what the individual needs in order to grow and thrive and flourish and how we can support them in getting those experiences. I think there's a more focus on kind of informal and social learning or what I like to refer to as me learning and we learning. I have a model where I talk about you, me, we learning. And me learning is me grabbing a hold of learning opportunities and being a self-driven adult learner to go out and look for learning opportunities where I can continue to grow. And we learning is that learning where we bring our social network together and learn from each other. And organizations can help impact all of those you, me, we learnings. In the we, in the we learning space, they can, you know, focus on community building. They can make opportunities available for individuals to gather and learn from each other. And even in the me learning, where it's that self-actualized learner, an organization can prepare learning paths. They can partner with organizations that create learning. They can have asynchronous learning available. So individuals can really take ownership of their growth and, and move their careers forward, move themselves forward, be happier, be more engaged. I really see learning and development as a partner, as a champion, an advocate, a supporter, a co-conspirator of the people that work within our organizations to really do that work and partner with them and champion them and make sure that we're providing a wealth of opportunities so we meet everybody where they are in order for them to find their space that feels comfortable and authentic for them to grow and develop. So what you're saying is quite interesting. What Because I understand it that this massification of, of training is gone. So it's over. So even the strategy of, of, of having like a lot of trainings that it was that last for two days, the traditional training format of delivery of a facilitator, they see someone, they deliver for two, uh, for two days, they have maybe a satisfaction survey as a proof that it was done and it's 
is okay. Uh, that is gone. And even e-learnings alone, uh, it should go. I mean, alone, it doesn't work. So it, it means that what I understood is that if you don't have the ability to personalize the, uh, the learning, to have this feedback loop on, on actions, then we, you are not doing the, the right thing. And this is, so this is the major change during, uh, during the, uh, the post COVID time. It is that maybe it's less about what topics we talk, uh, we teach, but it's more about the way we are delivering, right? Mm. I agree. Absolutely. I think you can't just have a portfolio of those two-day in-person classes anymore and call it a workforce learning and development strategy. Mm. Yeah. You need that. You need a diverse portfolio. You need, you need opportunities for people to connect and learn from each other and learn on their own and come together in cohorts and, and you know, all of those pieces are necessary now where I think it, you're right in, in the eighties and the nineties, you would have a, a two day workshop. Everybody would go to the workshop. You'd check the box. You would pretend that everything was done. You know, you, you didn't check back in with managers to see if behavior change had happened. You didn't check back with individuals to see if they were able to do their job better. You didn't follow their maybe promotion trajectory or their uh, longevity within the organization. All of those pieces are impacted by learning and development and having that growth culture. And I think, you know, since COVID, when we think about what we should expect, I think organizations do need to pay more attention to this. I think learning and development can and should be used as a part of the workforce and business strategy. And now it's really important as we think about your employee value proposition, employee engagement strategies, we absolutely need to be thinking about learning and development in all of that. And the learning and development, to your point, needs to be nimble. It needs to be agile. It needs to constantly reinvent itself just so we can make sure we're meeting people where we are and remaining relevant for the world that is constantly changing around us. Oh, it, it, it is amazing that thanks to this crisis, this global pandemic, we have realized that we were not ready, in fact, to equip correctly uh, the workforce and specifically more the leaders who were who are responsible, in fact, to lead people in times of change. There has been a lot of volatility in terms of the level of stress, uncertainty about work during uh, during COVID, changing the way we work remotely, and that has been painful for a lot of uh, a lot of people. And leaders have not been ready. I still remember this famous uh, report from KPMG in 2021, just in the middle of COVID, showing that the number one concern for CEOs was the readiness of their leaders. They sucked during COVID time. And that opened the doors to reconsider the way we are, uh, we are training people. So, and that makes it interesting for the learning and development, uh, department. So there has been already a change uh, in terms of the role. But Angela, should we expect more changes in the learning and development department in, in terms of the, their importance, their, uh, the, the tactics, the strategies, their, their mission inside of, uh, inside of an organization. Should we expect more changes for LND? I think we should. I think, first off, I think we should just expect change as a standard. I yeah. think you know, there, there's this notion that change is, change is, change fatigue, that term change. I hate the change term change fatigue. We've been changing since we've been born. Yeah. And, and thank goodness for that. Thank goodness for growth and change. 
And I do think that in organizations that are paying attention to what is happening in the world, they're going to start even more involving their learning and development in their people and culture departments or human resources or whatever we call that. They're going to start bringing them to the table more to think about that workforce strategy piece and how we can take the people that we have within our organization and help them to grow into the roles that we need them to be in to be successful in the future. It's not going to be about just rehiring new people every time the world changes. We need to think about how we can make sure we have people in our organizations that have that growth mindset, that are excited about growth and excited about change. And we as learning and development professionals need to be there with our C-suite to help make sure that they're thinking about that future readiness Hmm. in maybe ways that that they hadn't thought about it when the world was moving a little bit more slowly. (laughs) You have said something that, uh, thank you for mentioning this story about rehiring new people. Because yes, we believe that you don't perform, <clears throat> we can replace you with someone else. The problem is that if organizations do not change the core of their culture, values, and behaviors that needs to be implemented in the workplace, they will not attract anyone because now the younger generation knows that they have the choice and they can even decide to work for less money if they get more balance at work, maybe more development opportunities, uh, or more meaningful work. So they have the choice. They they will not come and work for that organization who is offering the traditional way of developing people. Absolutely. But L&D hasn't got the best reputation ever. Let let me be open. I'm I'm not from that industry, so I I see it from the perspective of a business person. In the corporate world, I I wasn't in the L&D. I was caring about the development of people, but I had to deal with LNDs, HR people. So they didn't have the best reputation. So, and maybe it, ca- it came from s- some type of recurrent limiting belief that they had concerning how we develop people. And that's why for 30 plus years, we have got these traditional two days, three days trainings uh, and where nobody was checking if there was any results down the line. And by the way, there is even research that shows that we don't remember anything after two or three months after a training because nobody was there to reinforce behaviors. Uh, my boss didn't ask me about any if, if it was something that I can use at, at work. It wasn't related to my core weakness. It was a um, one size fits, fits all. And during COVID, there has been this growth of e-learnings. Everybody, hey, go to LinkedIn Learning. You will get everything that you need. But we are humans. I need feedback. I need something, somebody to tell me to, to, to relate to my, to my work. So I talk too much, Angela. So <laughs> what are the most recurrent limiting beliefs that L&D has concerning people's development? Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, I, I, two things come to my mind when I think about those, those limiting beliefs. The first one is a saying that we have here in the United States that goes something to the effect of you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And frankly, that's wrong. So it's based in this very early scientific research that supported something called a fixed mindset. So saying that in specific periods of a person's life is when they can learn certain capabilities. And frankly, that's just bad science. 
since the 40s, the late 40s, and probably more popularized in the 60s, we've been starting to make the case for neuroplasticity. So Ooh. that's the brain's ability to adapt and change as a result of effort and experience. And because our brain is sensitive to experience, when we put in effort, correct practice effort, you can continue to learn if you're willing to try new things, take risks, um, dive into unfamiliar tasks. So that that you can't teach old dogs new tricks. It's just wrong. Ooh. And and if you if you know it's wrong and you know we have this neuroplasticity, we have the ability to change and grow throughout our lives. That I think is the first thing that we need to all come to agreement on. The second thing is that L and D and HR are just about the squishy like people stuff, the the not real business stuff. And I would contend that people are your business. And if a business strategy is not linked to your workforce strategy, you will not continue to be successful. Because to your point, Ivan, as we think about employees' ability to move around, to pick which organizations they want to work for, organizations need to sell themselves to their employees. That employee value proposition that we spoke about briefly earlier, it's so critical. And if you have an organization that's only focused on the what you do instead of the what and the how, which is where that learning and development and HR kind of focus comes in, it helps organizations think about what we do, but also how we do it, how we show up, how we take care of the people that are, are making our business happen. And of course, it also teaches new skills and ways to be more collaborative and it builds trust and it builds happiness and it builds engagement. It does all these wonderful things that we know absolutely impacts people's ability to be successful, to be innovative, to execute quickly, to execute efficiently, all of those things that are so important for business strategy. So it's not just the squishy stuff. Mm. It's the very important business stuff that actually helps us get work done that happens in learning and development shops and human resource shops. <laughs> so two things that I have taken is about the, the, the limiting belief that people may not be capable of acquire a new, um, new knowledge to acquire new, to change the concept of neuroplasticity comes to, to hand. Uh, by the way, maybe it's also the fact that, huh, I have noticed that human resources people or L&D are not always well equipped in terms of human psychology to understand this principle. And that's why they haven't heard about neuroplasticity. That could be also one, one point. You have mentioned also about <clears throat> that money is not enough to attract people. In fact, that it's becoming more difficult to, uh, to, uh, to attract, uh, talent. Uh, definitely money is not enough because, uh, you take a Gen Z and in number five, six, you will find money. The rest is things that are more valuable to them, like purpose, like, like balance in life and so on. Um, and when you were mentioning the, 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 this part of the focus that we have in the what we are achieving instead of the how, I was thinking exactly my latest performance reviews that I had back in my corporate, uh, corporate life is like every discussion was about what I have achieved and all of the things that be, that 
contributed to the development of people, the time that I was investing so that there is a new generation of people, they, that was like, it wasn't contributing to my bonus, by the way. Right, and absolutely. And I was working for an international American company. Doesn't have anything to do with American. Huh? All of the companies have become very internationalized and yeah, and they have that in common, the what is more important. So it seems that there is something, and we will talk a little bit more about something to do with how we are assessing performance today. We will touch base a little bit more uh, uh, later. Great. Um, according to the, I mean, for you is a mix of experience together with research. So according to your knowledge and experience, what are the things that that work to drive performance, growth, and happiness at work? Uh, Evan, I love this question. And I think the answer is right there in the question. I think happiness is so important. And so we have a, a team here at Berkeley that run a center called the Greater Good Science Center. And they do all kinds of research on well-being and 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 work. And, and you know, when they look at just well-being, so individual well-being, they talk about factors that impact someone's well-being. And there are things like altruism and compassion and diversity and empathy, gratitude, mindfulness, purpose, kind of these social connection things. And I want to quote from you just, just from one of their research studies that they have out on the website. They say, so again, this is the Greater Good, or the, I'm sorry, the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. They say, people who are happier at work and more committed to their organization rise to positions of leadership more rapidly they're more productive and more creative, and they suffer fewer health problems. More and more research is suggesting that happiness should not be an afterthought for workplaces. It should be an essential goal. Mm. And they've done a ton of work in this, and they even have an e-course around the science of happiness at work. And so again, it's not just this fluffy opinion piece. It's literally deep science research that talks about how we bring happiness to our work. And what they talk about just very briefly in, in their work is about mindfulness and resilience. So when you're happy, you can be more mindful and you're more resilient. And that really helps individuals in handling stress and also shielding against burnout. And we talk about burnout so much right now. We talk about burnout as this horrible thing we need to fix. And I will say that burnout is a symptom of people not being happy at work. And if you try to fix just the symptom versus the cause of what's happening, you're not going to get as far. As we know in medical science, if you only go after a symptom, you're going to miss that bigger picture. So as we talk about burnout, if we don't think about happiness as well and how that relates to mindfulness and resilience, I think we're missing something. And they also talk about happiness related to empathy and emotional intelligence. So in that space, they talk about how trust, collaboration, and innovation are so important. And that trust, collaboration, and innovation Im impacts happiness at work and also improves productivity and satisfaction. So I think if you can think about ways to ensure that your people are happy, all of these other things kind of come along with it mindfulness, resilience, handling stress, avoiding burnout, empathy, emotional intelligence, trust, collaboration, innovation, improving productivity, improving satisfaction, improving your business. Hmm. 
all of that can really be rooted in making sure that we are taking care of our people and paying attention to what's making them feel fulfilled and happy. Uh, I'm a, someone who is bought by, by this idea. The fact is that many in organizations do not know that there is really research, is not an opinion, is not someone who lives in California in a hippie community who thought that this would be nice to have in the world, bring happiness. It, it is rooted into research that aligns performance and happiness. And there is a lot of numbers that, that prove correlation with business outcomes, with clarity. So thinking that if we are going to make our employees happy, it means giving them whatever they want, and then it's going to cost a fortune. That is a traditional, old-fashioned that way of looking at, at, at business that doesn't have a future. So if we continue believing that, then it's certainly is going to be a challenge to attract the right people. You have also mentioned uh, burnout, uh, which is which is a topic that it is quite dear to me. And you are right. And many people do not know that burnout doesn't mean I have been overworking like 15 hours per day. It is more I don't like where I'm going is this feeling that I will have like on Sunday evening because Monday morning I have to be in a place that I hate. Right. And, and that is not just like wishes. It is something that in psychology we call cognitive dissonance where I don't like, I don't feel attracted to. So it's, it's a place where that I, that I, I feel it in my brain that allows that, that blocks most of the important signals in order to drive innovation. It will drop down my, my, uh, my productivity, the levels of absenteeism, which is like a pre-sign of, bur uh, of burnout, uh, increases a lot because of the fact that I, I don't feel okay in a place. So when I, there is no balance between what I do believe and I feel like I, I, I need, I deserve and the culture of, uh, of the company. Oh my God. You said you touched the, 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 the topic. <laughs> um, so one of the tools that are, that is often used to, uh, to, to, to drive this performance growth and happiness is the personalization of, of, of the, how do you, how do I call it? Of the training, the, the, the personalization of the discussions in order to individualize something that is relatable to people because we have to go and dig a little bit into the motivation factors, the triggers that affects, in fact, performance on, on people. And one of the tools is coaching. But there is a big problem with coaching uh, that, in fact, many organizations have mentioned to me is it's not scalable. It's simply not scalable. If I need like a, a full army of coaches to come uh, to come to my place, it will cost me a pound because sometimes coaches are not cheap. And when they are too cheap, it means that they are maybe not well-equipped, well-rounded. So um, it costs a lot and sometimes it takes time to see results. If, if we go by a traditional met method of coaching, we don't know when to expect change, in fact. Um, so what options do organizations have in order to scale up this bloody coaching? Right. You know, first, I just want to agree with you. Coaching is an important skill for managers to have. It's not the only management style, 
but it's a good one. And it's one that we need to pay attention to. You know, we also need to be mentors and advisors and supporters, and we need to do all these things. But coaching is really important. And I think when we think of executive coaching in the old school, you know, you hire someone for $20,000 to have a weekly meeting with someone for six weeks to, you know, that's that old school executive coaching kind of thing that people think about when they hear coaching. I want to flip that on its head and say that there are ways to bring coaching or a coaching culture, coaching mindset into an organization without spending those hundreds of millions of dollars to get those high-priced executive coaches. Think first about using your leaders as teachers. So get your leaders to model what they want to see. When we think about coaching, it's all about asking a lot of questions to get people to come up with answers that they already have within themselves. So that doesn't cost any money at all. Teaching leaders how to ask the right questions to get people to come to the answers that they have within them is just a new way of looking about looking at, at conversations and leadership. So get your leaders organized around this idea of what coaching is. It's asking a lot of questions. It's not giving a lot of advice. It's having one-on-ones. It's talking to people in ways to help them think about how they would answer a situation, how they would come to a conclusion for a problem or a challenge, talking with them and just asking the deep, powerful questions to get them to come to that answer. And then start building managers as coaches. So once your leadership starts modeling those powerful question kind of behaviors, start getting your managers to act as coaches in their one-on-ones or their performance conversations. Ask powerful questions. Don't spend your one-on-one giving, okay, well, this is how I would do it. And this is what you should do. Don't always be directive, you know, acting in coaching way with the people on your team, because as managers start to do that, it starts to flow down through the organization. And then we also want it flowing up through the organization. So you can think about building a community of practice that supports that grassroots growth of coaching. So you build a community of practice or basically in in our positions in the C-suite space, we just support our organization's building of that community of practice and let people come together and talk about coaching and think about it together and maybe watch a LinkedIn learning or read an article and think about how they can incorporate that into their lives. And then, you know, build peer coaching into your organization. So have peers at all levels come together and have coaching conversations. Use coaching circles where you can bring a group of people together to ask each other powerful questions to help people come to solutions to their problems. None of this costs very much money, but it's a different way of thinking about your organizational culture and structure that's rooted in that coaching mindset. And I think that's where we get the real bang for our effort. It's not hiring the million dollar coach to come and sit with some one person for one hour, once a week. That isn't scalable. I I have 9,000 employees that I take care of here at Berkeley. If I hired each of them an executive coach, oh my goodness, like it blow my, my, my boss would laugh at that budget request. Instead, what we did was did these other things where we used our leaders as teachers, where we built coaching into our management, where we created a community of practice, where we built in peer coaching and coaching circles and all of these other 
bits and pieces to support the overall co culture of coaching on our campus. Uh, so there, there are two comments that I, I want to do. So, so the, the biggest challenge for a scalable coaching has been, has been the way we train them. So in the past, in order to be a manager as a coach, you needed to be trained like three to five days. I still remember mine five. It was five days and it was complicated at the beginning because I'm not a coach. So basically, uh, it was long and tedious to, to do it. And then to remember, in fact, all of the things that I learned, it was difficult. While you, what you are suggesting is that st stating the core, which should be part of any good, healthy culture, is about improving your listening skills, bringing perspective to, the, to, to someone, uh, which is basic human being, no? Like when we are interested, when we are discussing with friends, and except that we are not giving our opinion, we are just facilitating this, uh, facilitating, uh, facilitating answers. So challenge number one for scalability was the way we were training people, uh, the, the, the future coaches. Um, and the other thing is that I have the impression that the second, it, the second one is something that you mentioned, but you didn't say it directly. It's the branding. Why do we have to call it coaching? It has maybe already like a bad reputation. It, it, it should be just being human. It should be just listening. It should be just building a community, building trust. You, we can call it, we, the, the world is open. We can call it something else, but maybe we need to kill a little bit the branding of coaching itself, right? Turns out fast. Yeah, I think is building a shared language that your organization agrees this is what this means, a shared understanding and language, call it whatever you want. But you're right, it's about being human. Huh. It's about being human. So my understanding is that, <clears throat> and you mentioned it, is that in, uni in your university, the University of Berkeley, you have implemented, and that works. But let me put a little bit my business uh, hat when you say that when the, you say that it works what are the expected what outcomes do you have what validation do you have that it has worked that it brings something for for the university yeah you know when we started this this work five years ago about building this kind of coaching culture there was skepticism and one of the things that we did was we got a baseline. So we have an employee engagement survey and we ask employees how they're feeling and how they're showing up around performance evaluation and communication and, and all these different aspects. And we started to, to do our work and we started to build this, these kind of coaching mindsets into the work that we do. And then we looked at the employee engagement survey two years later and every one of the KPIs, the key performance indicators that we called out that would be impacted by this change that we were making st statistically significantly increased. Every one of them, which is powerful, just data in and of itself. Then COVID happened and we started hearing about this, this great resignation. Mm. And so we started paying attention to how many of our people were leaving. And our numbers, we, we absolutely had people leaving the organization, but not in some of the numbers that we saw around some of our benchmarking. And then we start paying attention to just what the, what the feeling was, what, what people kind of anecdotally what they were saying. 
and people were feeling better. There was more trust within the organization for leaders. We asked with pulse surveys, we asked questions like, do you trust your leader? Are you looking for a new job? Do you want to leave? Would you recommend this as a great place to work? We paid attention to those numbers. And now we know that not all of those can be attributed to this one program that we did. <clears throat> and at the same time, a culture change is not one program. We changed the way we write job descriptions. We changed the way we advertise job descriptions. We put this learning culture, learning mindset piece into our job descriptions. We talked about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We talked about doing performance a little bit differently. All of these pieces were with that aim of putting a more people, human-focused lens on the work that we did. And we absolutely saw statistically significant increases in different metrics that we were measuring. And it just feels better. It Ooh. just feels better. It's one of those things that sometimes people say, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but when I see it, I'll know, you know, I don't know what will be wrong, but when I feel the wrong, I'll know what's wrong. You know, you can do that in the other way too. You can, it can just feel better. It can feel better. Uh, Angela, something that is very often forgot, forgotten when you are implementing a, a coaching in the organization is that exact thing that you mentioned. It is about measuring. What are you going to measure? If you don't measure, you don't know what if it has an impact or not. If you could, should scale it up or you should bring more resources. So there needs to be numbers and poll surveys are a good start something that everybody understands as a simple uh, uh, poll survey so that that makes sense you also mentioned that there was in parallel you were changing the way performance was measured and and it might be that the way the traditional model of assessing performance, this especially what we mentioned earlier on about the what instead of the how, might be the bottleneck to create like intrinsic motivation, people wanting to, to work for you, and it comes from your heart. Uh, and it might be also limiting to create engaged workplaces. So what alternatives do we have to consider in order to measure performance? such an important question you know we talked about when you're building this this human focus or coaching focus or whatever you want to call it th there's many pillars in that strategy and there's an old saying in business that goes something to the effect of what gets measured is what gets done and what gets rewarded is what gets repeated Ooh. so if you just say oh we're we're human focused and we're coaching focused but you continue to do business the exact same way you always have focusing only on the what people are going to pretty quickly figure out that it's just lip service. So as you're thinking about this and you're thinking about assessing performance, I think that is a critical part that you need to pay attention to. You need to pay attention to how you're assessing, how people are performing, how they're showing up in order to truly change the, the way that you're being more human focused or more coaching focused. And the first point I would say is get rid of those systems where we write that yearly novel to justify our jobs. We all know these. You sit down and it takes you how much time? And you write a justification of why you should continue to be employed. And then you give it to your manager and they write a novel and then they send it up the chain and that person reads it or something and clicks a button and says, yes, I've read it. 
and then it sits on a shelf for a year and no one looks at it again. <clears throat> like that way of doing performance evaluation, it's the way we used to do it. And it's so broken. And so I would contend that we need to build systems where managers and employees talk about the organization goals and their part in it, in those achieving those goals regularly. Mm. So move away from that performance evaluation to a program that's based in performance development with the right amount of evaluation in it. You know, include collaborative goal setting into the discussions. Nice. Touch base specifically about performance and what's needed in the areas to support more than once a year, maybe three times a year, have a half an hour, 45 minute conversation about what you're up to, how that's impacting the organization, what you need to do to keep moving forward. And I think the most important thing that I think really impacts that change in performance, moving from a system that just measures what we do but also, you know, measures the what we do and the how we do it is for managers to ask the question, what can I do as your supervisor to better support your success? Or what tools, resources, educations do you need in order to support and advance your success? If you add questions like that into your performance evaluation conversations, you will absolutely see beneficial results. And it seems a little weird. If I, Angela, am evaluating you, Ivan, in your performance, why would I possibly say, what can I do to support you better? But if you're looking at it as this collaborative performance development conversation with the right amount of evaluation in it, of course I would ask you that. Because as your manager, I want to support you to be successful. And if you tell me, you know what, Angela, I need our one-on-ones to be an hour long instead of 45 minutes long, and I want to meet once a month instead of every two months, you know, having that conversation allows managers to really start to know their employees, to know what motivates them, what makes them happy. All those pieces we talked about, it humanizes each other and allows us as managers to meet our employees where they are without having to guess or assume. And that in and of itself, I think, makes a huge difference. So moving away from that novel that we write that sits on the shelf to a more collaborative, conversational kind of space, making sure we're measuring about measuring performance on criteria that aren't just about goals, the what we do, but maybe we want to think about how we innovate how we continually change, how we collaborate. Maybe we ask questions to employees, say, what did you accomplish this period? And who did you work with? You know, what new ideas did you come? How did you make work more efficient? How did you create belonging and inclusion for people on campus? How how are you getting that work done? Because if you're achieving your goals and leaving like a wake of dead bodies in your path, because you achieved your goals in such a way that that you're you're really harming those around you that's not the behaviors we want to see in a human focused or a happiness focused or a coaching focused culture we want to be able to say the what you're doing is important and the how you're doing it is also important and so let's talk about that as a part of our evaluation process Exactly. So what we, what I have understood is that even the how should be rewarded. So if there is a bonus, it's not because you have been the top performer in sales, 
is also about how did you contribute to the culture of, of the company? How much have you spent time to help others? For instance, how much customers have been satisfied on the way you, you lead conversations uh, uh, with them? And, and by the way, Angela, I'm this idea of yearly review. So I, I got a little bit of the shivers because I still remember how long time it takes to write my books um, uh, about performance. Um, and, and the way to phrase it, even though nobody reads it, uh, that, that takes a little bit of time. So I'm, um, I, what I have noticed, and it might be a trend that is growing, is still very small, is that removing yearly, yearly reviews with uh, a process of continuous conversations that are developmental, not into the judging pattern, uh, are very helpful. Uh, maybe even a, a allowing to crowdsource uh, inputs a little bit like ordering an Uber. So how satisfied are you on Angela in her collaboration skills? Or I don't know, in the way she's empathizing with others or, or the, the time that she's devoting for uh, to help uh, her, her team. And if there is people who are working with you and they have accessibility at any time to drop uh, the stars like Uber, <laughs> It could be a simple way to crowdsource behaviors because relying on one person, the manager, to to give feedback, is not sustainable, really. And and it is difficult to to break the pattern of thinking. Performance review is about judging myself. It's about judging me, and it's not about helping me to de develop. So if it is once per year, it, this is what it becomes. If it is something that is recurrent, where we have a chit chat, I catch up for 15 minutes and, and discuss about what went right, what went less right, and how can I help you? It takes less time, right? And it's something co co constructive. So there is a, a lot of good efforts to go uh, to, to, to rework in this perform performance review, to rework also on how we classify this high potential, this by the way, I hate these nine boxes. I, I don't know. Whenever I see a book where there is a nine boxes, I, I have problems with my breathing. <laughs> so classifying people without the in-depth knowledge of their level of resilience for the, for the future in the, in the level of, of human, uh, meta skills, I, I, I think it's a little bit dangerous and we are going towards, towards hell. Angela, it has been really lovely to discuss with you. And I'm pretty sure that out of this discussion, there is going to be like a generation of more questions that, and maybe some of the, the audience wants to reach you out. Angela, how do we reach you out if I have questions and I want, if I want to chit chat with you, what is the best way? Well, thank you. This has been so much fun. And I absolutely want to continue the conversation. The very good thing about me is I have a very unique last name. So Stopper is a very unique last name. If you go on LinkedIn, I think I'm the only Angela Stopper on LinkedIn. So you can ping me on LinkedIn, um, reach out, continue the conversation. I love so much our learning and development community and the work that we're doing. And I think that the more we come together and the more we learn from each other, the better we're all going to be. So thank you, Ivan, for having such a wonderful platform to bring us together into your, your thought partnership and your thought leadership in this space is just wonderful. So thank you for bringing us together, 
for bringing new knowledge to our industry, for keeping us relevant and growth mindset focused in all of the work that you're doing. And certainly anybody can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm very easy to find. I'm pretty sure if you Google Angela Stopper, I'm pretty much the only Angela Stopper like that way as well. Very easy to find and would love to continue the conversation. <laughs> it is. I have done that. I have Googled you and you are like the first page. Uh, <clears throat> but you say something that I have to correct you. It is not about keeping learning and development or the the adult education community relevant this is the time their time of the life this is the time where a lot of the importance of education in the workplace has become so much relevant because there has been so many mistakes and these mistakes of creating more human centric work uh, cultures can be amended only now and it is the greatest time for our community. Thank you, Angela. Have a lovely evening. Thank you. Thank you so much.